This is episode 11 of season two, which I'm reading two Joseph stories. This section is titled, Some Lessons. As I said, this writing is a biblical reflection and a memoir. According to dictionary.com, a memoir is, quote, a record of events written by a person having intimate knowledge of them and based on personal observation, an account of one's personal life and experiences. In short, what I have been doing on this podcast in the Joseph-like story part is to the best of my memory what I saw, heard, and experienced. Is it 100% accurate? No. I don't do anything 100%. We all have our own recollection of the events of our life, but hopefully there is some degree of accuracy in my recollections, for I try to be as careful and as honest as possible in recounting the events involving the senior pastor and the senior associate pastor in the seven years I was under them. Besides, I have nothing to lose for I've already lost everyone and everything I profoundly love. So there's no benefit to me to distort the truth. As for my reason for telling this story, it is not about exposing these men, which is why I only use their titles. My purpose in telling this story is for the possible benefit of any follower of Jesus of Nazareth who needs to be warned to pay attention to the kind of leader he or she is following. Remember, leaders should be and will be held to a higher level of accountability today and judgment later, James 3.1. But for now, people need to be careful of and especially discerning of anyone in leadership. And in this, we need to use the measurements Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament say one should use to discern correctly. My reason for telling this story is for the purpose of sharing some lessons I learned that I hope will be helpful to others. Lesson number one, the way up is actually down. This principle applies to every one of Jesus's faithful followers, and he most especially means this for those who who are truly called to serve his bride as leaders. So, If the spirit isn't taking the leader down with downward type things, then he ain't taking that leader up. Period. No exceptions. If you, listener, are looking for or currently following a leader who has the trappings of worldly success and you like this about him, turn off this podcast and delete it. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people who want Jesus of Nazareth in his ways. And if you're a leader, listen to John the Baptist. This is in John 3, 29 and 30. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Seeing as most leaders have forgotten this, or they simply ignore it. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. In other words, godly leaders don't do what they think. They do what Jesus tells them to do, 
And they're very careful to make sure that it is, in fact, Jesus talking to them. John then ends with this, a very famous statement. He must become greater. I must become less. If you're following a leader for whom this downward process isn't obvious in his life, I'm not sure who is the bigger fool, him or you. Lesson number two, true versus false godly leaders. By their fruits, not their ministry or giftings, one can tell the true leader, teacher, prophet. If, if one knows the biblical standards and qualities and training processes Jesus uses to make a true godly leader, teacher, prophet. Here's Jesus talking, Matthew 7. Watch out for false leaders, teachers, or prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, see Psalm 1 for the tree and the fruit metaphor. You will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, character, good character. But a bad tree bears bad fruit, bad character. A good tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, bad character. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit or good character. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, that is good character, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, their character, and how they live their lives, not their ministry, you will recognize them. For example, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Most will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. See Matthew 24, 11, and 24 and 25. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Paul's instructions to Timothy in his first letter to him about the qualities leaders must have are simple and clear. This is chapter 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. But the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. In other words, worldly versions of success. He must manage his own family well, and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. 
The senior pastor and the senior associate pastor were not temperate. They did not have self-control. They were not gentle. They were quarrelsome. They were conceited. In short, they had bad character, although they acted as if they were wise and godly, that is, honest men. They were not and still are not. The love of money is is very easily and almost always ignored and rationalized in this country. As a result, most leaders live a life that has much more in common with the American dream than with Jesus' kingdom. And this is to the church's shame and destruction. For as Jesus said, his followers cannot have him and money. They must choose. Another critically important issue for leaders, one of many the senior pastor and the senior associate pastor lacked, is the crucifying experiences Paul went through, such as that he talks about in 2 Corinthians and in Philippians. This process humbled him and weakened him to the point that he truly saw himself as a chief sinner and not someone who has his act put together pretty well. You see, without this process, a leader is not only arrogant and lacking in empathy for others, but he has no anointing from the Spirit. For the Holy Spirit only gives his power to the humble and the weak. This then sets up the uncrucified leader to be jealous of anyone who has the Spirit's anointing. Further, the kind of leader who lacks this necessary training due to being, quote, successful at avoiding it, uses his own powers and talents and abilities and strengths to do things related to ministry. The church in this country has tons of these kinds of leaders and so very few who are like Paul. My term for this non-negotiable quality and characteristic, this training and preparing of a truly godly leader is time in the desert. You see, everything, everything Jesus does, as opposed to what man does, he begins in the desert. This is because it is in the desert that he forms the necessary character a person needs in order to do the assignment he has for them. Notice I said character. The desert time is not so much about teaching a person how to do an assignment. For doing the assignment Jesus has given to someone is not so much about knowledge and skill. It is much more about one's character. Thus, one of the first things I learned and what happened to me has to do with biblical qualities and qualifications for leadership in Jesus' bride. Not that I didn't already know some of these, but because of what I went through, the few things I knew, as well as others, came into significantly sharper focus. Again, such as the critically critical crucifying process I just mentioned. What happened to me made me ask myself some questions. Who do I follow? What kind of leader do I respect? What kind of leader do I trust? What kind of leader deserves my trust? Humans are humans, meaning we're not only not perfect, but we're sinners. And born again by the Spirit humans, although we have the Spirit, they're also not perfect, and we too can still sin. All of Jesus' followers make mistakes, do stupid things, and even deliberately sin at times. Hopefully, as a believer grows and matures, he does such things less and less. But the fact remains that we all fall short in various ways at various times. Thus, the vitally important process of being humble and broken and brought low 
that then produces real love, compassion, understanding, long-suffering, etc., is not optional, especially for leaders. Lesson three, fearlessness versus cowardice. Another significant lesson I learned had to do with being a coward. Have you ever noticed that the armor of God, Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, has no protection on one's backside? It's all, all its protection is in front, facing the enemy. Therefore, turning around and running away provides no protection from being struck from behind. Truly, it is better to go down facing and fighting than to turn and run. There's no honor before Jesus in being found with fiery darts sticking out of one's buttocks. Again, cowardice should never be rationalized and excused, even with valid biblical concepts that are taken too far. Certainly, there are times to suffer persecution and false accusation, but that suffering should always be faced forward, not backing down as a coward. See Revelation. 21.8. One of my constant fears under this senior pastor was that I would somehow lose my place as one of the pastors. Thus, I was constantly trying to please him and the pastoral team, just as the basketball dream pointed out, with regularly, which regularly required me to compromise who Jesus made me to be and what he called me to do. And yet the very thing I feared came upon me. I might just as well have faced the unhealthy issues I saw very early on in the senior pastor, the, the senior associate pastor, and the pastoral team in general, even if in exposing them and confronting them, it cost me my position. Lesson four, walking in light versus walking in darkness. Another incredibly important lesson I learned was that when something serious is not addressed, it not only festers like a cancer, but like an unchecked cancer, it will eventually, at some point, bring about a death. And when it does, often it does so in very, very bad ways. Therefore, the best approach is honesty. And honesty is expressed by confronting the issue, not ignoring it, hoping it will either go away or that it will somehow resolve itself. Because I have a propensity to avoid uncomfortable things, my tendency has been to rationalize what I know is not right. To make excuses, depending on being kind, understanding, avoiding being judgmental, submitting to authority, etc. True biblical concepts can often be used in unbiblical ways to justify unbiblical behaviors. As I said, I'm aware of Jesus' teaching on turning the other cheek, Matthew 5.39. And I believe there are situations in one in which one should do this, such as the things in Matthew 5.10 through 11. However, Turning the other cheek is not something Christians are to always do. Not only did Jesus himself on one occasion give us an example of not turning the other cheek, John 18, 22, and 23, but Paul is also an example. Paul, too, did not turn the other cheek when he was wrongly arrested in a prison in Philippi, Acts 16, 37. He spoke up. He even threatened to tell the authorities about how he'd been mistreated. Bullies back down when they're stood up to in a godly way. Lesson five, submitting to true versus false authority. Submitting to spiritual authority is a clear biblical teaching also. 
However, there are times not to submit to spiritual authority. For telling yourself that you're submitting when what you're really doing is trying to avoid addressing seriously wrong things in a leader is not healthy for you or the leader. Leaders are not a god. It's sad that I even have to say something so obvious. They are human beings just like you and me. Therefore, they have issues just like the rest of us. And because they're in leadership, they should be held to a higher level of accountability, not a lower one. When a leader is doing wrong, he must be addressed. For his sins and his character defects have greater impact on those he's leading. Saul was king of Israel. He was in charge. He was the living God's appointed leader. Therefore, he had the right to exercise his authority as a leader and the one in charge, the one this God tapped to be king. Yet, David would not submit to Saul as his leader with the right to exercise authority over him. David didn't come to this serious decision because of some personal dislike of the man, nor did David, nor uh, because David was a rebel. David came to this position because Saul launched a spear at his head, attempting to do him serious harm. David decided not to stick around to give Saul any more opportunities to hurt him. This wasn't rebellion. This was wisdom. Having any level of leadership in the church, Jesus' bride, is a great and terrible responsibility, not a privilege to be exploited for personal ease, fame, glory, or financial reward. So very many leaders in this country seem to think that they are privileged above the people and that they aren't as accountable for their actions. The fact is, they are more accountable for every little action, much less the big ones. Leaders' lives are more scrutinized by Jesus, not less. They haven't been given more privilege. They've been given more responsibility, for which they will be held more accountable. Jesus did not enter his kingdom by way of a coronation, as worldly kings do. He entered his kingdom by way of the cross, so will his true and faithful followers, most especially those Jesus called to be his under-shepherds. Finally, I remind you of what Cheslaus Milo said, quote, in a room where people unanimously maintain a conspiracy of silence, one word of truth sounds like a pistol shot. Oh